What a great thought, the everlasting love of God, everlasting. We were talking this morning in Sunday school a little bit about just how God dwells outside of time. That's what that everlasting means. It has no end. He created time from outside it. He dwells outside it. And here we are bound by time. And the best we can grasp is something that is everlasting. That, that's great. Well, I've never spoken on a Sunday evening that I can recall ever, anytime, place, anywhere. And I've already learned one thing. When you speak on Sunday night... You should not count on getting a nap on Sunday afternoon. Um, it just sleep just won't come. You can uh, lay there all you want to, and it isn't going to happen. This is strengthening your serve. I've lost count. I we are several messages into this uh, tonight. We are in on Barnabas, and I've called this Barnabas in five acts. Now, you know I'm really a clever guy, right? Because we're going to spend our entire evening in the book of Acts, and we're going to do five. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, that groan, a groan as good as a laugh when you do a pun. Um, all right. Join me for the opening act. I'm going to be in, we're going to start off in Acts 4, 32 to 37. I'm in the New American Standard. I just, I've always, I've always studied that. Translation, I enjoy it, so you can hopefully bear with me uh, or join me in it if that's what you've got. Um, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, your word is so sweet to us. It is the truth, and we lean on it and lean into it. This evening, we just ask your spirit who inspired your word to work in our hearts, that we would hear it afresh, anew. Even these texts, which we may have heard many times, speak to us anew tonight, Lord. Convict us. Don't let us walk away unchanged. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so Barnabas makes his first appearance in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 is where I'm going to start. Uh, excuse me, he appears in verse 36. We're going to start in verse 32. I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, setting of the stage. Stick with my theatrical theme here. We're going to begin in verse 32 to set the stage before Barnabas makes his entrance. Uh, stage right. Um, here, Luke is speaking of the condition of the church in Jerusalem. He begins with an overview of the situation, then he moves to some details, and finally he gives a cardinal example. So, Acts 4, 32 to 37, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need." 
All right, let's just walk through this and make a few observations, starting off there in verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed. If you have an ESV, I believe your translation says the full number. Congregation may not communicate exactly the, the, the number of people here. This is not a small group Bible study. This isn't even a small church anymore. The Greek word there, translated congregation, in the NASB is the word plethos. And you're thinking, I think that sounds familiar. You're right. That's where we get the word plethora. Plethora. That means a lot, a whole lot of something. It's a Lucan term. He loves this word. He uses it 24 out of the 31 times it occurs in the New Testament. It's in Luke's writings. He uses it to describe, for example, a plethos of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, or uh, in the miraculous catch of fish, a plethos of fish, and their nets began to break. So the church in Jerusalem, first off, we have to realize, is not some small, little, tiny group of people anymore. People came to faith on the day of Pentecost. This is early in the church, but hung on in Jerusalem. There were a lot of people here being instructed in their faith, in their new faith, in their newfound faith. That would mean there'd be a lot of people who would be in need because Jerusalem probably wasn't home to many of these folks. What's impressive, though, at least for me in this description of them, is that they were of one heart and soul. Back in verse 24, it says they prayed with one voice. So here they are of one heart and soul, praying with one voice. This is not a divided group. They are one. One voice, one heart, one soul. That's a kind of a well-worn phrase, heart and soul. You've heard that before many times. It speaks of close connection, real friendship. We might say in contemporary vernacular, they were tight. This was a together group of people. I'm remembering some kind of wisecrack about when did the first automobile race take place when the second automobile was invented. And I'm thinking, when did the church uh, argument, first tr argument in church take place when the second member joined, probably. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking this isn't a small thing. This is a large group of people, and they are connected heart and soul together. That's a, that's a oneness. When I read that, I think, man, that's, that's the kind of church you want to be. That's the kind of church you want to be a part of. This oneness at the core of their being was more than a feeling. It came out in a material and physical way, too. It says, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own but all things were common property to them. That's a really interesting phrase. Not any one of them claimed anything belonging to them. They didn't claim what belonged to them. They knew it was theirs, but they didn't possess it. They didn't hold on to it. They did not cling to it. Unlike the toddlers we raised, probably the toddlers you raised said something like, it's mine. No, it's mine. I had it first, I saw it first, and so the thing goes, when we get older, we just learn to sanitize our language, and uh, most of the time anyway. And so here we have a church that's together and looking out for one another. They're not possessive, they're not clinging, they are not self-centered. We think of, oh, just the first verse that always comes to my mind, esteem others as better than yourselves, Philippians 2. Man, they were living it. They were living it. Now Luke moves in for some more detail. 
How does this look? How does this work? Verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. So we have two characteristics are named here, power and grace. Neither one of these is in short supply. They are great and abundant. The power here you might think of, think of uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. That was a sermon. If you haven't read that, I went back and read that within the last month or so. Wow. I mean, he really, he, he was, he, he, he laid it straight. He, uh, he, he was dropping two-by-fours on people's heads. Uh, it, was, it, was not a, uh, it was not a pulled punch in that sermon. He preached with power. Um, so power in bearing witness to the resurrection. And miracles were likely present, but the focus of the language here is on giving testimony. Giving testimony. And then, it, of course, it says, abundant grace was upon them all. God's blessing was on all of them. How was this evidenced? The next question, verse 34, answers that for us. For there was not a needy person among them. How did that happen? Continuing in verse 34, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This is unique. Landowner, property owners at this time probably would have constituted only 15 to 20% of this congregation. That's not a lot of people. Unlike today, uh, owning property, uh, yeah, that's kind of a common thing. Then 15 to 20%. You might note here, it's, uh, let's see, that would not be a lot of people in the, this body of believers, but those who did sold what they had. And the grammar suggests here this was a gradual liquidation. It wasn't like, all right, we're all going to go sell our stuff. It's more like we're looking around. We see need. God moves in our heart. He touches me. I go and I sell and I lay that at the apostles' feet. A little time goes by. There's more need. Someone else is moved and meets that need. It wasn't this uh, wholesale liquidation. It was one by one, people stepping forward to meet the needs within the church. Being laid at the apostles' feet, and that's simply a phrase that would demonstrate giving control of the assets to the apostles. And uh, what Luke paints here is a picture of a body of believers who is exactly devoted to God, and they are devoted to one another. So now we move to verse 36, and this is where Barnabas enters the scene. And Luke is going to put a little flesh on this description of, the, description of the early church. He's going to give us an example, sort of a poster child, if you will, who is the prime A, number one specimen who exemplifies the early church in Jerusalem. Verse 36, now Joseph, you know, wait a minute, I thought we were doing Barnabas. Hold on here. Now Joseph, a Levite by Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas. I don't know how many of you remember that, but I think this is the only time he's, we find out his birth name was Joseph. And from now on, he is Barnabas, and that's how we know him. That might be good in a, uh, man, the youth aren't here. That would be good in a Bible quiz drill, I'm sure. 
Now Joseph, a Levite by, of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, Joseph, that was obviously a very common name in this time, as you can imagine. There would be a number of Josephs. If you just think, you can probably pop off two or three that you can... Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, they're all through the Gospels. That would probably give you some impetus to give someone a second name. That may explain why he has a second name. It's not unique to have two names. You think Simon, Peter, Saul who is also called Paul, we remember those. Very few folks remember that Barnabas' birth name was Joseph. Next, Luke tells us he was a Levite of the tribe of Levi. He was in the priestly line. Levites were often wealthy and well-educated, but not all were priests. That would seem to be the case here with Barnabas. He was also additionally born on Cyprus, a native Cyprian. Being in that location, he was likely quite familiar with uh, Greek culture. Some would even speculate he might have been a Hellenistic Jew. That would be a Jew who had adopted a certain amount of Greek language and culture. Later, that, 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 that familiarity is going to make him very well suited for a mission to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, since he knows that culture. Then it says, also he is called Barnabas, son of encouragement. It is notable that the name was given to him by the apostles, and it stuck. Have you ever tried to give yourself a nickname that was somewhat flattering? It doesn't really work. <laughs> I have to confess, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to tell you what my nicknames were when I was a child. We'll steer clear of that. He is called Barnabas by the apostles, that is incredibly flattering. A son of encouragement. A son of encouragement. It sticks. It's the default name. It's what everybody calls him. You would have to conclude the shoe must fit. The shoe must fit. The narrative going forward bears this out. Uh, above all, if Barnabas is nothing else, he is a son of encouragement. I especially like the sequence of the four verbs for summarizing the action of Barnabas in this uh, particular verse, 36 and 37 verses there. It says, he owned, sold, brought, and laid. That's exactly how it's described in the general text. What the church in general was doing, here is Barnabas, and he's living it and doing it uh, as, 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 as the prime example. He saw a need. He had the means to meet that need. He didn't say, remember the text in James, be warm, be filled, and then walk away. He sold the land, and he offered up the proceeds to see that the need was met. So that's Act 1. I would say here we see some very easy, quick, obvious applications in this first narrative, there's uncommon generosity. It's part of the whole church, but especially, particularly, on the part of Barnabas. I think he may very well have been in Paul's mind when he penned 2 Corinthians 9-7. You might remember that verse goes something like, Each one must give as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, 
For God loves a cheerful giver. That, that sounds like Barnabas to me. Secondly, we see he had a deep commitment to the welfare of the church. And this trait specifically we will see expanded as the story moves forward. He was a son of encouragement. Well, follow me now to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 verse 26. This is Barnabas Act 2. I'm going to set the stage here a little bit. Uh, we're going to be bouncing from text to text, and I'm just going to have to verbally give you the context, or we will be here all night. As Pastor Matt offered, I mean, I, but I, I'm not planning on taking him up on that. I didn't get my Sunday afternoon nap, right, okay. Um, let's set the stage here a little bit. So about three years prior to this text, Saul left Jerusalem for Damascus. He was not a happy man. He was a man on a mission. He was going to Damascus to persecute the church. He had already seen to the stoning of Stephen. We all know what happens. There's a dramatic conversion. He's knocked to the ground. Uh, Lord, uh, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. He's... Uh, he's converted, he, he's, he's, he's taken into Damascus, Ananias comes and sees him, lays hands on him, scales fall from his eyes, he comes to faith, and then most chronologists would say he spent time in Arabia, roughly about three years, learning, studying uh, the faith. He returns to Damascus, and it doesn't go so well. He, he shows up in Damascus, and he is boldly proclaiming the gospel, and defending Christ as the Messiah, and they decide that they need to end his life in Damascus. And he winds up needing to be snuck out of town, lowered over the outside wall in a basket to ground and sneaking off to safety. This is where we pick up this story. He heads to Jerusalem, and let's see what happens to Saul now in Jerusalem. This is Acts 9.26. going 9.26. We're going to go all the way to 30 right now, just through verse 27. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Interesting, Saul's conversion is met with a high level of skepticism. Not too surprising, right? I mean, the last time Paul was seen in Jerusalem, it would have been described like this, Acts 9, verse 1 and 2, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's their memory. That's the last time they saw this guy about three years ago. They're looking at him now and they're like, uh, not a chance, pal. Not a chance. I find a little humor in the NASB rendering there. It says uh, he was trying to associate with the disciples. 
I don't know if you can picture this. Uh, coffee? Hey, hey, Peter, why don't you and I... Peter? Peter? <laughs> hey, Pete! You know, I mean, we're, we're not... No one's, no one's willing to mix with him in any way whatsoever. He is viewed with high suspicion. Uh, trying to associate with disciples, they're not buying it. They were not believing that he was a disciple. Saul needed some help. Saul was in desperate need of help. Enter Barnabas, stage right. You got to love that phrase. It makes me think of uh, Ephesians 2, where it says, it, it describes our destitute state and then says, but God. Here you see Paul struggling to make connections with the church in Jerusalem, and we have, but Barnabas. Everyone was afraid. Everyone was holding him at arm's length. Everyone was keeping their distance from this dangerous fella who's probably not legit, but Barnabas. It says he took hold of him. Daryl Bach translates this. It's very, um, uh, if you, very uh, descriptive, uh, elaborately descriptive. Taking him, he brought him. And Bach continues, he says, the idea of taking him here has the force of taking him under his wing. Taking him under his wing. Note, Barnabas speaks for Saul. I find that actually quite amazing. Uh, Paul seems to not be a guy who is at a loss for words, but here Barnabas speaks for him. He says, but Barnabas took hold, Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them he described to the apostles. Paul's sitting there. He's giving testimony. Barnabas is speaking up for Paul. He's laying it on the line. You got to like the string of ands here as well. But Barnabas took, Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how, to, how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. You can just feel a certain level of intensity there as Barnabas is just rolling out this story. He's really laying it on the line here, I would say. He's sticking his neck out. It would be easier to sit back and let someone else do this. Imagine if you're wrong. Wow, what a mess you would have introduced in the church at Jerusalem. One commentator stated it probably took someone of Barnabas's stature and connections to make this happen. Yeah? It would take the apostles approving of this man and, a, and attesting to his conversion to see the acceptance that he received. So Barnabas got Paul before the apostles, the church leadership in Jerusalem, told his story, and the result we see in verse 28. It says, and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem. The he there is Paul, or Saul at this point. And he was with them. Saul was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. That's a far cry from trying to associate with. It must have been shocking to them. I mean, their last vision of, of Paul is overseeing the uh, execution, the martyrdom of Stephen. And here he is, boldly 
speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Notice that's the second time we've heard boldly in reference to Paul. It means to speak freely, openly, and fearlessly. We can certainly believe that of Paul. So Paul is back on task. Verse 29, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, and we're thinking, whoa, Paul, slow down. That's the group that executed Stephen. Remember, you were there. I wonder what these folks will do, these Hellenistic Jews that he's talking and arguing with. Well, the verse 29 says, but they, <laughs> they were not talking and arguing, but they were attempting to put him to death. So the church looks after Paul. His adoption, I would say, into the church in Jerusalem was complete. Look what happens in verse 30. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. This is dangerous, Paul. We've got to get you out of here. We've got, we, we've, got, you, we've got a life of yours that we must protect. They didn't just hang him out. He was in the church. He was adopted. He was part of it. They were looking after him. Verse 31, interestingly enough, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Sorry, I find that a little... You know, move Paul, the instigator, out, and we now have peace. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. When I get to that, I, this, this story... The application here is, I, I just, I immediately, have ever had a friend take a chance on you, support you when no one else would? The church in Jerusalem now accepts Paul as a legitimate disciple. Why? Why did they accept him? How did he get in? Well, that was the work of the son of encouragement. That was the work of Barnabas. If this is all Barnabas did, help Paul gain acceptance and support within the church, his impact would have been incalculable. But like the infomercial, but wait, there's more. We have Act 3, 4, and 5 to go. Act 3, Barnabas, Act 3, turn to Acts 11, verse 19 is where I'm going to pick it up. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Stanley Toussaint, the uh, venerable... Um, since retired professor at Dallas Seminary, describes it this way. Here the church took the first steps to take the message to uncircumcised Greeks. Verse 19, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, sorry, i got to stop there. That's an interesting point. Three different times the, 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 uh, the persecution that Stephen's martyrdom is referenced throughout Acts. And there's always an impact. It's listed because something happened. Things moved. That was not an empty event. Made the, uh, okay, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, 
and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. This was a unique and demanding task. Think about this. They needed a diplomat. They needed a diplomat with some discernment. What's going on here? Greeks believing in Antioch. We've got to have this checked out. So they select Barnabas, the ideal man from the job. First, he was from Cyprus. He knew the place. He knew the culture. He, he, he understood what was going on. Secondly, he was the son of encouragement. He had a winsome way in a delicate situation. And we've already dis- observed his discernment with Saul. He looked at Saul and saw genuine faith when other people were of suspicion. Verse 23, Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. I want to go, Veni, Vidi, Vici. He came, he saw, he, got, he came, he saw, and concluded. When he arrived, witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. He came to Antioch, he saw God at work in these hearts, and he came to a conclusion. This was the work of God. So what do you do when you see God at work? You rejoice. You rejoice. That is exactly what he did. That is exactly what you would expect Barnabas to do. Next, verse 23, and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And then Luke draws a conclusion for us. Verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I just, I just, I can, I can, I can, I can feel Barnabas there. Encouraged them all with resolute heart. Remain true to the Lord. And then the conclusion. Do you recognize that? That's exactly how Stephen was described a few chapters earlier in Acts. A good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And then finally, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas is sent on this special mission, finding, find out what's going on in Antioch. Is this legit? Is this real? Do we support what, what's, what's happening? Barnabas, Barnabas is there. He finds genuine faith He's in the midst of a work of God among Gentiles, Greeks, encouraging them now and rejoicing with them in light of this exploding growth. What Barnabas does next, I think, is incredibly revealing. Verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. I'm like, what? You'll note that is a very short verse. I actually think the guy... I don't recall the name, who separated the Bible into verses. (laughs) That verse is really short, I think, in some ways for a reason. It's a punctuated moment. He left in the midst of all of this. You're you're thinking, this is a career moment. I'm thinking, this is a career moment. Where are you going? This is a time when you build your empire, right? You, you're, you set up the Barnabas School of Theology. You, you, you hold a seminar. You, you write your book, Leading Greeks to Christ. Uh, call now. Operators are standing by. Um, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere with this. This is my launch pad I've been waiting for. If you're a career-minded Christian, Of course, that doesn't describe Barnabas. Look for who? That's my next thought. It's like, you're going to look for who? 
Saul, wait a minute, that's the guy that snuck out of Damascus in a basket, showed up in Jerusalem, couldn't get the time. He didn't exactly light it up. Well, he did light up the opposition in Jerusalem and had to be moved out of town again. I'm thinking, you know, I I realize we all know who Paul is going to be and what he is going to do, but look at where he is right now. Does he look like the future star? I mean, I don't know. I'm just like thoughts of, um, sorry, my basketball background comes to me. Uh, Michael Jordan at at, at a camp uh, with several hundred basketball elites was nowhere even near the top of the list. He was like some just middle of the road, who would want this guy? And he went to North Carolina, and the rest is, is history. I, I honestly think Paul doesn't look like the Apostle Paul we have in our minds at this point. But what happens? Verse 26, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church... That would be Paul or Saul and Barnabas. For an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I'm thinking Barnabas was right again. You know, it's the the description of him. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was a discerning man. He saw in Paul things that other people we're not seeing, not because he was some kind of a genius, because he's walking with the Lord and he's exercising his faith. He found the right guy, despite the track record, in my opinion. This guy can teach. He's exactly what we need here in Antioch. All right, we're headed for Act 4. Bear with me, this is going to be a little bit longer stage set. At this point, Barnabas and Saul are kind of linked as a team. They're a year teaching together in Antioch. They are the dynamic duo of the early church. They take a gift from Antioch to the church in Jerusalem to help with the famine that was going on in Jerusalem. When they then return to Antioch, they are selected and commissioned by the Holy Spirit for a missionary journey. Yes, this is the first missionary journey And they head out, taking along with them John Mark, whom they had picked up in Jerusalem. They are on the island of Cyprus. That's the first leg of their missionary journey. This is Barnabas' old stomping grounds. Sharing the gospel with a man who's described as a man of intelligence, a pro-council, like a governor. But there was also, at this moment, a Jewish prophet who is a magician, who had a, a Jewish false prophet, a magician who had attached himself to the proconsul, and let's just say he was kind of getting in the way of this uh, evangelistic moment. And then Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, cuts loose. I'm in Acts chapter 13, I'm at verse 8. Acts 13, verse 8. And see how Paul handles this situation. But Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You 
who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. That is an amazing miracle. That is also fascinating to me. You think Paul had the exact same thing happen to him, right? He lost his sight for a time and came to faith. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's John Mark. That's the one they brought from Jerusalem to go with them on this journey. We've got to talk about that first. John Mark left them. The guy they brought from Jerusalem bailed out. He, we're going to see later, he's described as having deserted them. File that in the back of your mind. Moving back to verse 9. The next thing we note. This is the first time we learn Saul has a second name. But Saul, who was also known as Paul. I've kept saying Paul, but up until this moment in the book of Acts, he's just Saul, Saul, Saul. But now we find out he has a second name, Paul. His name Saul almost ceases to be used except for example, times when Paul is giving his testimony, Saul, Saul, who are, uh, why do you persecute me? Uh, you know, he's sharing that testimony. He uses that name, Saul. But then the most interesting thing is that we find out Barnabas here has a third name. I don't know if you noticed that. It's really tricky. He has a third name. Now Paul and his companions. See, there, Barnabas is uh, Joseph. He's Barnabas and he's companions. What happened to Barnabas? That's the first thing I'm thinking, wait, wait a minute. Well, there's a change in leadership here. Paul is stepping up. Barnabas is stepping back. I mean, you heard the screaming protest from Barnabas, right? Uh, who do you think is in charge of this outfit? Or um, maybe you heard, the, uh, maybe you heard Barnabas, Barnabas squealing, you'd better head to the back of the bus, sonny boy. I'm calling the shots. Or maybe you heard... I remember when you couldn't get the time of day in Jerusalem if it wasn't for me. Okay. Not a word of dissension over this transition in leadership. Not one comment. Not one nothing. Incredible humility uh, is what I perceive here. An awareness of God's hand. It calls to mind to me the words of John the Baptist to his disciples regarding Christ. They were, they were worried... John the Baptist said to them, he must increase, I must decrease. I think Barnabas seemed to know his place. I honestly think he saw this day coming. He was full of the Holy Spirit. We all desperately need this level of humility. We also need this awareness of our place and our gifts and how we might use them and how we might support others with what they are doing. Incredible humility. I recognize this is a par argument from silence. We don't, you know, I, I 
obviously rolled out a few phrases that we might hear in uh, culture today from uh, people lacking character. But um, I, I really, I, I don't think it's a, a, a misguided conclusion. Uh, you might be thinking, though, Luke just left it out. I mean, after all, it would be embarrassing to record all of that. Or you might be thinking, well, Barnabas, he's probably just one of those quiet guys. You know, quiet and, and bitter. Um, but you actually could get Barnabas riled up about something. And for that, we're going to move to Acts chapter 15. This is the final act. Acts 15. I'm going to be in verse 36. Paul and Barnabas have now completed their first missionary journey. And you'll remember, without John Mark, he took off when they were on the island of Cyprus early on in this uh, missionary journey. We're not told exactly why, but we're going to see what Barnabas can get excited about. Acts 15, 36 through 40. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him, and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And wow, what, what happened there? The best team, the dream team of the early church, the dream team of missionaries just had a humongous fight and split. Howard Hendricks in his sermon series on discipleship taught on this event I really like the way he plays this out. I like his interpretation here. He says, uh, first thing he says is, don't water it down. They had a Donnybrook. And you're thinking, uh-oh, that's a dated language. What is a Donnybrook? Is that a prize fight maybe? Okay, well, I looked it up because I knew you'd want to know. A suburb of Dublin, Donnybrook. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, suburb of Dublin, uh, known for its annual fair. You think things run for a while here? This is the 10th annual, the 20th annual. This, this fair started in 1204 and ran annually until 1850. The fair was known for being notoriously disorderly. In other words, when you say someone had a Donnybrook, they had a blowout. It was a no-holds-barred, Fight. Okay. Hendricks goes on, and I know what you're thinking. Who was right? You may have noticed reading the text, it doesn't really, it describes the, the, the clash so benignly, you can't really go, well, he was, a, well, the text doesn't really lean one way or another. You don't know whose fault it is. Well, Hendricks says, I'll tell you who's at fault. Uh, oh, excuse me, who was right? Who was right? I know what you're thinking, who was right? And he says, I'll tell you who was right. They both were. 
And that's not a cop-out. Um, it's, it's interesting. They were both right. Why were they both right? Well, Hendricks describes it this way. You see, Paul had the work in mind. He was not about to compromise the work. This guy deserted us. We needed his support. He left us. Barnabas, on the other hand, absolutely characteristic, had the worker in mind. Paul had the work. Barnabas had the worker in mind. Barnabas is the man who would not give up on Saul, was certainly not going to give up on John Mark. And can you imagine the teaching and training John Mark would have received on that trip to Cyprus? And then Hendricks closes out with this. You want to see something beautiful? Sorry, that's my best impersonation of Howard Hendricks. It probably doesn't sound a thing like him, but when I'm <laughs> quoting old guys, you've got to do the old gravelly uh, tone, right? Well, I've got to watch it. I've got a lot of white hair. Someone's going to do that with me pretty soon. <laughs> okay. Um, you want to see something beautiful? Turn to 2 Timothy 4.11. From the pen of Paul, this would be maybe days, weeks, or months from what he calls, I love this, what he calls his departure, his departure. He's about to be beheaded. He calls it his departure. Matthew Henry has a really nice comment on that. I mean, just think about that. He's, he's really got his eye on eternity and what he's living for. About to be beheaded, I'm just departing. My departure is near, he says. Okay, 2 Timothy 4.11, you probably already cruised the verse uh, before I had a chance here to read it. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. You know Mark, the deserter, right? How did he get his ship righted? How did that happen? Uh-oh, one more Hendrix line. I'm sorry, I should have warned you. Hendrix retorts, well, my friend... It wasn't through Paul. <laughs> he sent him camping, you know. It's like, sorry, we're moving on. I've got Silas. We've got ministry to do. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, surely built into, into the life of John Mark significantly. Significantly. Well, there's a lot of application here. And, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I just looked at the clock. You all are a very patient crowd. Let me uh, roll through some quick application for you. Um, just some things to think about. Have you ever dropped the ball so bad you want to crawl in the hole and pull in the dirt after you? Yes, I have. Did you have a Barnabas to pick you up? No, no, I'm fine. I meant to do that. The question then comes, who is committed to you deeply enough to know when things aren't fine for you. Who's committed to you that deeply? Another question, easier to answer, to whom are you committed? It's hard to acquire friends, but you can certainly be a friend. Are you a Barnabas? How's your commitment to your brothers and sisters here at Newton Bible Church? Among other circles of influence you're in, how is your commitment to your brothers and sisters here. It would be good to sit down with yourself and ask yourself, how can I be a son of encouragement to my brothers here at Newton Bible Church? We need one another, and I think sometimes far more than we realize, and I think specifically men. I know when we moved 
In our first seven years of marriage, we moved seven times. We lived in four different locations. Every time we moved to a new location, Janet would have a group of friends that were pretty, like within three to four months, for sure by six months. By the time we got ready to move from a location, I was just building that web of friends. Guys, I honestly think we struggle in this area to be open, to build friendships, to build commitments to one another. But we all need to be a Barnabas in that sense. We all need the commitment to one another. Those are the big takeaways, I think. The smaller ones run in just quick series. A generous man, a cheerful giver, concerned for the welfare of others. Each one must give just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Yeah, that's 2 Corinthians 9, 7, one more time. A winsome encourager committed to helping others along their way. I'm one of those few folks who thinks, I, I really am sort of semi-persuaded Hebrews was written by Barnabas. Consider this verse. Tell me if it doesn't, even if he didn't write it. This really describes him. Let us hold fast. I can feel him encouraged. This is resolute heart. Let us hold fast. The confession of hope without wavering for he who promises faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Next, he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was discerning. Next, he was humble. He knew his place and he helped others find theirs. Lastly, he was a never say die, never give up on you maker of disciples. Something we could all certainly aspire to. Wow, I would say, brothers and sisters, that is a lot of application to pursue. So, let's go for it. I'll close in a word of prayer and we will be done. Father, from this life of Barnabas, we see so many things to emulate, to pursue, to seek. We, we, we can't pursue them all at once. Speak to our hearts. Give us direction. Give us courage. Give us drive. Give us a desire to seek earnestly our sanctification. Give us a heart of love for one another, a support for one another. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.